reading from chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to, particip- to be participants with de- demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go... Eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. 
For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Well, how about we pray, hey? Father, thanks so much for giving us your word. And we pray that you would really open our minds and our hearts now, uh, that we would be understanding this um, complex passage from 1 Corinthians and that uh, we would be putting it into practice in terms of our attitudes and our actions in life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, they say that pride comes before a fall. That's one of those sayings which has become part of our culture, hasn't it? But it's actually from the Bible, uh, from uh, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, um, which says that pride comes before a fall. And by pride, it doesn't mean, you know, taking pride in your work, doing a good job and that sort of thing. Uh, it's about being arrogant. It's about be thinking, <coughs> you know, being a bit too, uh, too confident, um, being a little bit too sure of yourself, thinking uh, more highly of yourself than you ought. And uh, when you're like that, you're likely to fall. Uh, even the non-Christians love this proverb because it, um, it resonates, doesn't it? It's so, it's, it is actually part of our experience and it makes sense. Um, the proud person uh, can end up being a bit blind to their faults and because of that, <clears throat> they just don't see the traps that they're likely to stumble into. Now, what about us as Christians? Can we sometimes become so settled in our Christian life uh, that we think of ourselves as being the, the strong, the mature, um, the really, um, you know, the Christians who've kind of arrived and become, so, become a bit too confident uh, in ourselves and a little bit less careful about temptation and falling into temptation. You know, as we look at um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 today, there is one verse which kind of sums up the message and it's in verse 12 where Paul says, so if you think that you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Now, why would Paul need to say that to the church in Corinth? You know, what might their problem have been? Sounds a bit like pride, doesn't it? Sounds like there were people in the Corinthian church who were thinking a little bit too highly of themselves and uh, you know what happens after pride comes a fall uh, if you're with us a couple of weeks back you might recall when we looked at chapter 8 that the um, the presenting issue uh, in this segment of 1 Corinthians was whether or not it was okay for Christians to eat food that had been offered up to an idol at the idol's temple. Do you remember that? Okay. 
Um, it's not a big issue for most Western Christians today, but it is an issue for Christians from an Eastern background in particular. And it was a particularly big issue if you lived in Corinth in the first century. Um, because Corinth uh, was full of idol temples. You know, the uh, Greek gods, the Roman gods, the Egyptian gods and so on. And w when they offered up meat uh, as sacrifices at the temples, that would be often followed by a, a feast where you'd actually eat a lot of the meat that would have been offered up to the idol and some of the meat that wasn't eaten at the feast uh, would then be um, sent to the butchers and if you went to the marketplace to buy you know your uh, your leg of lamb or whatever uh, you couldn't be guaranteed that it hadn't been offered up to an idol at the temple and was being on sold to you so here's the question uh, are Christians free to eat this food or would that constitute idol worship? Now, the so-called stronger Christians in the Corinthian church, you might remember, they had an answer to that, didn't they? And their answer was, yep, it's fine. You can eat the food because idols, they are just blocks of wood or blocks of stone. The gods that they represent don't actually exist. There's only one true God. And all food comes from him and is made clean by him. So no problems. Christians are free to eat food that's been offered up to idols. So were they right about that? Or were they wrong? Well, yeah, um, they were right. Their, their knowledge of those issues was correct. Their logic was correct. Uh, Christians are free to eat such food, but is it always right to use that freedom? Can sometimes the use of that freedom be wrong? Has their knowledge so puffed them up that it could actually lead them to a fall? Now, that's the issue. And in, um, if you open up your Bibles at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, in verses 1 through to 11, Paul says, well, guys, let me remind you the, of the example of Israel uh, in the Old Testament. I'm going to read to you the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. All right, so which Old Testament generation is he talking about here, folks? This is the, the Exodus generation, isn't it? These, are the, these were the guys. I mean, there was, there was no greater demonstration of God's power in the Old Testament 
than that which these guys had not only witnessed that they had been a part of. I mean, God, you know, they're, they're, they're fleeing from the Egyptians. They get to the Red Sea. God parts the sea. They cross through over the Red Sea without getting particularly wet. And then they look behind and the Egyptians are all drowning as the sea closed. I mean, what an amazing miracle. What an amazing demonstration of God's power. Uh, and then when they got to the other side, it's, it's desert. Uh, in verse 2, they were guided by a cloud um, through the desert. And in verses 3, and three to 4... They didn't die of starvation or, or thirst, did they? No, God miraculously provided the manna in the desert, the bread that just appeared on the ground. He miraculously uh, supplied the quail and they weren't without water either. Um, a rock split open and water came gushing out and God provided for them food and water through their whole time in the desert. And so of all people, it was that generation who had absolute reason to be confident in God, uh, to put their trust in him and to never ever doubt him and to simply do what God says. Do you agree? They had it. This was the demonstration of God's power and of God's love. But look at what happened to them. What happened to them was sin and judgment. Um, have a look at verse 5. Verse 5, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as, the, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. This is not great news, is it? Um, in verse 5, uh, despite everything that God had done for them in bringing them over the Red Sea, God took them to the, the Jordan River to they just, you know, all they needed to do was cross over the Jordan River to get into the Promised Land. And they sent spies over. The spies came back and said, look, it's really fertile, but the people there are pretty big and strong and don't do it. Uh, except two spies. Um, one was Joshua, the other one was Caleb, right? And so they, they, they'd already seen what God had done and yet they were not prepared to trust him the next step of the way. And it was as a result of that that God, they wandered around in the wilderness um, for 40 years and as it says there in verse 5, that their bodies, the bodies of that generation, were scattered over the desert because they would never enter into God's rest except for Caleb and Joshua. 
And so Paul's raising that particular act of ungodliness. And then in verses 6 through to 10, he strings together four more examples of how that Exodus generation sinned and were punished by God. Um, The first one, remember when Moses went up to Mount Sinai and God was uh, giving him the Ten Commandments, uh, Israel was camped, they were at base camp and Moses was up there for a bit longer than they anticipated. They lost patience and they decided to take things into their own hands, didn't they? What did they do? They, they melted down their gold and they formed it into a, a golden calf and they bowed down worshipping that golden calf saying, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. And not only did they bow to the golden calf idol, but we're told in Exodus 32 that they then went ahead and held a festival to the Lord Yahweh. So they're eating, they're, they're worshipping an idol and they're trying to worship Yahweh as well. What do you, that's having a bet both ways, isn't it? Absolute compromise that they were in, indulging in. Uh, and Paul makes a point of the fact of their indulgence that they ate, they drank, and they reveled. They enjoyed themselves. In verse 7, Paul says, Do not be idolaters as they were. Now, this was highly relevant to the Corinthian church because in these verses 5 through to 11, each of the examples of how the Exodus generation fell uh, could be related, uh, uh, can be categorized in terms of three different types of sin. One is idolatry, the other one related to it is in sexual immorality and then there is grumbling, grumbling against Moses and Aaron, grumbling against their leaders, criticising their leaders and then being judged by God. Sounds a bit like Corinth, doesn't it? The idolatry, the sexual immorality that was going on in that church and the way that they were judging um, their, 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 their preachers, particularly Paul. Now, did you notice, um, and, and the point is, that the fact that God punished them is scary because this is the generation who had witnessed and experienced the Red Sea crossing. Uh, if any generation had reason to put their trust in God and to obey God, they did, and yet they fell and were punished by God. Now, did you notice in verse 2 how Paul described the Exodus? You notice that? Paul says the the Exodus was Israel's baptism, that they were baptised into Moses. That's interesting, actually, when you think about it, Paul's talking here to Christians. Uh, And and what was the rock which they drank from? In verse 4, Paul says that rock is Christ. Now, what does he mean by that? I guess the answer to that is in verse 11. 
where he says that these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. And who, how are we described? We are described as the generation on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. That is, Israel's experience of being saved and cared for by God is actually a pointer to our experience. The experience of those of us who've put our trust in Christ, have been washed uh, of our sins, we've been baptised by his blood, saved from slavery to sin, just like Israel crossing over the Red Sea. And, and when we put our trust in Christ, we're putting our trust in the one whom he said to the woman in Samaria, of, of Samaria in John chapter 4 that uh, whoever drinks from this well will drinks streams of living water, will never go thirsty. Because when we drink of Christ, when we put our trust in Christ, uh, we will never die. We, 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 we have life eternal. That is our experience. And so their experience is a pointer to who we are in Jesus. We are the generation who has experienced the fulfilment of the ages. So their salvation was actually a lesser salvation than ours in that sense. We have every reason to be confident in our relationship with God. But what does the proverb say? Pride comes before a fall. Israel had experienced those miraculous exodus, um, the, the miracle of the exodus, and yet they ended up worshipping idols, indulging in sexual immorality and running down their leaders. That's a warning for us because it's not beyond your eye to do the same thing. We can become idolaters. We can become so established in the Christian life that we don't recognise the idols that, we're, that are likely to warm our hearts. Um, an idol is anything in our lives that takes the place that rightfully belongs to the Lord. It might not be, we may not bow down to blocks of wood or blocks of stone, but maybe bricks and mortar, um, steel and rubber, material things, relationships. Anything which can occupy that space in our hearts, which actually belongs to God. Now, how is this relevant to the issue of um, food offered up to idols and the freedom that the Christians in Corinth had to eat such food? Well, in verses 12 through to 22, uh, Paul is actually concerned for these stronger Christians. Sure. They did have the freedom to eat food that someone else has offered up to an idol. But were, were they always right in the way that they did that? For how were they using this freedom? Back in chapter 8, verse 10, we saw that the issue was that they were so confident that they were right about the 
the correctness of eating that food, that they're even prepared to eat that food at the idol feasts, at the temple. Now notice that um, uh, the... the, the um, the, the, the pride that's involved in that, the arrogance in terms of them thinking that they know uh, what is right in that situation. It's absolutely true that the idol is just a block of wood and a block of stone and the God it represents doesn't exist. But Satan does exist. Um, verse 18, he says to these people, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who, who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. Do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Pride comes before a fall. They knew that they were free to offer to eat this food, but in their pride they didn't see the trap. They are just like those Israelites who were they're bowing down to a golden calf on the one hand. And then they're having a festival to the Lord, uh, you know, in the next, next day, even the same day. Um, these, you know, mature Christians in Corinth, they're eating at the, at the pagan temple feasts and then they're going and sharing in the Lord's Supper, which we'll look at in two weeks' time. You can't do that. That's, that's idolatry. Paul is quite clear. Verse 22. Are you trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You can't live a double life in that regard. Now, you can imagine, uh, you know, people in the Corinthian church... Um, meeting together this letter is being read to them must have been a long church service when they read this letter to to the, the congregation i might add uh, you imagine that that they're the, the you know the average christian sitting there thinking thinking themselves gee this is really hard paul what you're saying i mean you know i'm i'm trying to live a faithful christian life but in corinth man you know this place is just rife with idol worship and it's, it's just infused the culture. And, and it's really hard not to rub up against it. It's really hard sometimes not to slip up and to compromise. And Christians in, from Eastern backgrounds today face this all the time. It's really hard to separate the false worship from the actual culture that you're living in. And to that person, Paul offers words of comfort in verse 13. He says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. So don't feel that you're alone in this. Right? And God is faithful. 
he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Uh, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Um, there will be ways of, of not indulging in the idol worship, even you know, when you don't want to. Um, the, the God will provide ways for you not to do that. Um, sometimes you just got to apply your brain and think about, well, how can I, you know, so Eastern Christians today, uh, where the family wants them to go to the temple to offer up sacrifices to the ancestors and to not do so would be very dishonouring to the family. Well, there may be ways of think, other ways that you can honour the family and bring honour to the ancestors uh, that doesn't compromise, uh, doesn't involve false worship. Um, think those things through. And I guess it's the same for us in other situations of life where, you know, like in the workplace when the boss asks you to do something which you know is wrong. Uh, well, you know, think about it. Is there another way of achieving the end goal that doesn't involve sin that you can talk to the boss about and maybe you know change his or her mind on that ultimately sometimes it's a matter of just you just do the right thing and you entrust your yourself to the lord uh, even though it might be costly for you to do so because the lord will always look after you uh, in his way nobody is ever forced to sin sin is always a choice and there is always the option of saying no um, and just entrusting the outcome of that to God. The problem in Corinth was that it was sometimes difficult to buy meat at the butchers which had not been offered to an idol. Um, that might be the only meat that's available to you. So in verses 25 to 30, Paul says, that's okay. When you go to the butcher... Just don't ask the question. Don't raise matters of conscience. Um, don't ask if it's been offered to an idol. Just buy it, eat it, enjoy it and give thanks for it. Uh, in verse 27 though, he raises another possible problem and I want to read this for you. Uh, verse 27 he says, Well, if, if some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, Eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. So it's okay to go to that dinner. Just don't ask the question. <laughs> Just eat, enjoy and give thanks. But if at the dinner anyone says to you, um, this meat has been offered up in sacrifice, <laughs> then do not eat it. Both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake, the other man's conscience I mean, not yours, uh, for why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So, you know, there's the situation, you're, you're sitting at the table, uh, you're about to grab some meat that's in the, on the platter in front of you. When the non-Christian guest sitting next to you taps you on the shoulder and says, oh, by the way, that 
particular meat there that was offered up to an idol. Now, why would the non-Christian point this out to you? Why do you think they would do that? Maybe they're actually trying to be helpful to you. They know that you're a Christian and they think, and it's understandable, they think that as a Christian you would probably not want to eat food offered to an idol, even at someone else's home when you're having dinner. Now, as we've seen, they would be wrong in thinking that, but that's what they think. And so if you then go ahead and eat it, then that man might conclude, well, Christians are okay about idol worship. Now, the question then is, how does your actions at that point, how, how are your actions at that point going to help that unbeliever to realise that, <clears throat> in fact, that, it's, that they need to turn away from idols and turn to the living and true God? If they see you doing which they th something which they think uh, means that you're actually um, participating in idol worship, uh, even when their thinking about that is not correct. Well, you've got the right to eat the food, but um, Paul says here, give up that right. Don't eat that food um, for the sake of the other man's conscience. <laughs> for the sake of what the other person is thinking, uh, not what you're thinking. Verse 23, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, no matter how much you'd love that piece of meat, but you should be thinking of the good of others that's kind of chapters 8 9 and 10 of 1 corinthians is is one unit and the big uh, message of this unit in the, the letter is that as christians we have certain freedoms because of christ but we are free to give up our freedoms we are free to give up our rights so as to serve god and to serve other people um, it is very good to be settled in the Christian life, but as we see in these chapters, there's problems with that. Here in chapter 10, it's the problem of spiritual pride, thinking that we are so strong as Christians, so mature, and then falling into Satan's trap. What are, you could need to think through what are the areas in life that that might be a problem for you <clears throat> i doubt that for many of us it's about issues of food offered up to idols um i, I was thinking about this a number of many years ago i was uh, leading a men's bible study group in, in another church and we were dealing with the issue of um, um sexual immorality and trying to think through uh as men how uh what our um, vulnerabilities are and uh, what and, and how we could avoid situations where we might be tempted to um, indulge in sexual immorality particularly adultery and, and so we're thinking through issues such as um, 
how we relate to women who are not our wives, what kind of boundaries and barriers that we set up so as to uh, uh, protect our relationship with our wife. And one of the guys in the group um, thought it wasn't relevant to him. <laughs> he said, look, you know, I don't have a problem with any of this. I'm, I've been a Christian all my life and you know, I love the Lord and I love my wife and this is not relevant to me. I would never commit adultery. Now, they were not his famous last words. He didn't commit adultery. He actually, he actually died of cancer not long after that, which is sad. But that's the kind of attitude that we've got to be wary of, isn't it? That, you know, I am so mature that I don't have to think about the pitfalls and the traps. Friends, the, Corinth, the mature Christians in Corinth thought, we're so mature, we would never slide into uh, idolatry. And then they end up eating food at a pagan temple. As Paul says, you're actually involving demons at that point. Pride comes before a fall. The second problem with being settled in the Christian life is what we saw last week. That we know um, our spiritual freedoms in Christ and what our rights are. And we end up standing up for our rights and our preferences when we should be giving up our rights and our preferences for the sake of others. In the case we looked at last week, uh, so that others might be able to hear the gospel. That we would give up the things that we enjoy for the sake of entering into their world, um, to become all things to all men, so as to win some. Take a look at how Paul concludes our passage today. He says in verse, chapter 10, verse 33, For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. So what about us? Are we willing to follow the example of Christ? Uh, who, as we sung in the song early on, he gave up the air of heaven to breathe the dust of earth and then to die on a cross for us. Are we willing to be like that towards other people that they might come to know Jesus and for other Christians that they might not be tempted to fall into sin. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you again for the example of Christ and the example of Paul. Father, we want to pray for ourselves that we would be not proud people, but that we would uh, recognise our uh, vulnerabilities we'd be careful not to fall into sin. And Father, we pray that we would be people who are so passionate about the gospel that we would be willing to um, sacrifice many things in our life for the sake of others, that they would come to know Jesus. Father, we pray this in his name. 
Amen.